Welcome to Rare On Air, the new monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month we will be exploring the challenges, successes and experiences of those who live with a rare disease. In today's episode, I am joined by Kim Winter, the Chief Executive and Founder of Rare Minds, a UK-based organisation which has been offering bespoke counselling services for rare disease communities. As someone with personal experience of the impact of rare diseases, Kim describes the multiple, unique challenges that having a rare condition can have on one's well-being, and the need for greater mental health support for people living with a rare disease. I am also joined by Matt Boltz-Johnson, Eurodis's mental health lead and our healthcare advisor. Alongside leading our organization's advocacy work on mental health policy, Matt is developing a new Eurodis mental health partnership network to bring our Europe-wide community together in this area. Tim, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for being here and inviting me, Julian. It's great to join this conversation on mental well-being. Thank you very much. So, Kim, I'd like to uh, begin the episode by asking, what first led to you wanting to become a therapist? That's a great question, Julian, to which there's a very long answer and a slightly shorter one. I suppose like a lot of people who go into psychology or psychotherapy or counselling, I had an interest in what made people tick, why we do the things that we do. A lot of psychologists, psychotherapists have their own stuff they're trying to work out about themselves and their own family histories and backgrounds. But I suppose it's curiosity about human nature, really. And I suppose, you know, at some level too, a desire to kind of alleviate distress and, and suffering, really, you know, particularly emotional suffering. How do we do that? How do we look after each other, look after ourselves? So eventually, of course, you became a specialised therapist for people living with a rare disease. What events in your personal and family life motivated you to become a specialist in this area? Yeah, so I've I've been a therapist for nearly 30 years now, Julian. So I started off in the NHS and then moved into higher education, university services, working with healthcare students, medics, nurses in training. And My own experience with rare diseases started in my mid-20s when uh, my first husband was diagnosed with a rare cancer and had a very similar experience to many people who will be listening to this podcast, going back and forth to services, trying to get a diagnosis, trying to understand what was happening, going down routes of psychiatric services, you know, anti-anxiety medication, psychiatric medication, and was then diagnosed by a very young junior doctor who picked up um, an abnormality on a scan. And so we were sort of plummeted into the world of, at that time, rare cancers. He then died in in 2006. And six years later, his mother was diagnosed with a rare associated cancer. And an oncologist put two and two together and wondered if it was linked to an underlying syndrome that was fairly newly discovered at that time and suggested that my children, his children, were tested and the tests came back as, as a positive result for an underlying syndrome called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. 
they were 13 and 17 at the time. So you can imagine that was a corkingly good time to get a diagnosis of a rare condition. Yeah. It was not well handled at the time. My son disengaged completely from healthcare services, went a bit AWOL, went a bit off the rails and was very frightened by the diagnosis and was re-engaged really by the support of a wonderful GP and, and an oncologist we eventually found our way to. Um, and all through sort of my, my mid-20s through this period up to 2013 when my children were diagnosed I was working in various psychotherapeutic settings NHS higher education as I said and kept wondering why there wasn't a associated services and support for people like ourselves and I was very fortunate to be in therapy throughout because I've been training and it's quite acceptable for therapists to be in therapy on and off and my own supervision and I think like a lot of patient leaders actually a lot of rare disease organizations I felt there was someone who needed to step into that gap and start flying the flag for rare conditions and mental health I kept looking around thinking who is going to do that and well maybe that's going to be me then so in 2020 in the pandemic and it it became really clear that there was an increasing need because of the impact on the rare disease community overall and the added you know, the added impact of the pandemic, that we formed Rare Minds to become a sort of flagship, really, for rare diseases and mental health. Prior to that, I'd started doing some work with the patient organisation that supported my children and their condition, which was called AMEN. And we started off very small, thinking maybe this would just be a few sessions for people who are newly diagnosed and, you know, maybe having a little bit of decline. Or And it became very apparent quite early on that there was a real need to expand services within that organisation organization to offer support across the duration of the rare disease journey and offer different types of support to patients, to carers, to young people, online resources, groups, support programs. So we built out from there. And during that time, I kept being approached by other organizations to say, could you come and do something similar with us? We don't have anything like this. And of course, I'm one person. I didn't have the resources to do that. But I kept gathering colleagues around me who were interested. And that's when we came together to form Rare Minds and to start building really a way of providing therapy for those with rare conditions that we felt really met their needs and understood their difficulties. So that's how Rare Minds came about and, and we're three years old at the end of this year. So quite young still. Quite young, but three years is still a notable milestone. So congratulations. <laughs> So thank you. Uh, first of all, sorry, of course, about hearing the story of your husband and so on. But thank you for sharing that experience. And of course, the, the story of the diagnosis, diagnoses of, of your children. You've touched, of course, on a number of sort of unique experiences that pose a challenge to your family and also the experiences that you, of course, learned sort of were facing the wider rare disease community. Might you actually be able to sort of list for us or identify for us a number of the challenges that you would say are the most significant when it comes comes to the mental health or the well-being of people from the rare disease community? I mean, maybe I'll start by answering that by by saying one of the things that we notice a lot in Rare Minds and, and I often hear from people that I'm working with is a sort of feeling that they should have perhaps dealt with diagnosis better or there's something wrong with them for being impacted or upset or finding it difficult and distressing. And really, I think it's so important that we have the message out there that it's completely normal and understandable to be impacted and rocked emotionally 
when you get a rare condition diagnosis. It, it would be odd if you didn't feel like that in a way. But, you know, people often feel can feel a lot of shame or feel that uh, I shouldn't be as upset as I am or as rocked as I am. And of course, it's completely normal. You've, you've received an enormous piece of information in one go that is going to be life changing to different degrees, to different people, depending on the condition itself. So, you know, and, and the way in which diagnosis is delivered often sets a bit of a trajectory in our experience for the relationship with the condition over time, too. And, you know, the way in which a, a diagnosis is delivered really stays with people. When we talk to people, they remember the moment often, you know, what it was like, how they felt, interesting features in a room sometimes, which are often also indications of how traumatic it, it can be to have that, even if it is a sought after diagnosis and it can be very helpful it still has tremendous emotional impact and of course for many people that can be a very long journey to diagnosis with all sorts of ups and downs as, as we had where you know you might be sent down different routes and dead ends you might do a detour down the psychiatric services where people are going mm, is this something you know you're being a bit over anxious or all oh, this is just not all in your head is a is a phrase we hear a lot so i i think the impact of diagnosis diagnosis is always profound and it's something we we often talk about at length sometimes even a long time after the diagnosis has been given because there's there's often time needed to process that and it doesn't always happen immediately uncertainty is the other biggie that i think is really hard to cope with when you have a rare condition and that's on lots of different levels it's the uncertainty about the prognosis overall the uncertainty of when a condition might kick in because of course we know with rare conditions they they can impact at different times for different people we don't always have a clear picture of of averages and you know i always say rare conditions are unpredictable and behave unpredictably you know they're true to type in that but it also includes the uncertainties around you know is the doctor i'm going to meet today be one that will understand my condition is it going to be someone who's going to be able to treat me in a way that i feel respected and understood and is going to be on the ball with what I need them to understand about my symptoms or my health or my loved one's health. And it includes the sort of fears for the future in that. And whether it's yourself with the condition or whether you are a parent of a child looking at the future for them and wondering how they will cope in the longer term, fears for the future are very alive in the population for a number of different reasons. We often talk to parents about the concerns when they are not around or should they not be around for, for their children in the longer term? How will they be looked after and who will look after them? The implications for siblings or wider family members. And then the sort of knock-on effect on the sort of, I suppose, what we'd call the stress and strain on a family. Rare conditions. I, I was talking about that, that lovely John Lennon quote, you know, about uh, life happens when you're making other plans. You know, rare conditions happen when you're making other plans. And how you integrate them into your life and what you imagined it might look like and what it might have to adapt to and adjust to and shift accordingly. You're perhaps a parent who's imagined you'd go back to work, but you have then a child who has very particular needs. How do you adapt and adjust and perhaps as a couple 
make adjustments together. And people have different coping strategies too. You know, we do quite a lot of couples therapy in Rare Minds and it's not unusual for one half of a couple to become a bit of an expert and, you know, really on it with what a rare condition is and what it's all about. And for the other partner to be a bit more wanting to keep it a little bit at bay to sort of feel that things will be okay. We don't need to make too much of a big deal of it. And that can cause tensions in couples too, different ways of wanting to respond to the impact of a, of a condition. And, and of course, that's compounded with genetic conditions, you know, as, as so many are, the, how you make choices about future children, but also in extended families who may have very different perceptions around how you should have a relationship to that rare condition itself. Should you not talk about it? Should you just sweep it under the carpet? Or should it be something that's out there and talked about amongst yourselves? And the difficult feelings that are around for a lot of people around guilt or shame or embarrassment around, you know, conditions themselves, but sometimes also to do with perhaps differences or disabilities. How are they treated and and experienced in a a family too? So there's there's an awful lot that goes on. And one of the things we, we hear a lot too is about how, and I know I've experienced this in my life, how when you have a common condition, people will sort of lean in. By and large, everyone will know someone who's had that experience. You know, I'm so sorry. And, you know, they'll they'll kind of relate to it. But when you say, oh, I have this condition and it's called XXX and someone sort of looks a bit glazed and, you know, they don't understand what that condition is. They've never heard of it. It's very distressing because it throws you back onto that sense of isolation and difference and aloneness in the world at a time when you know you often want to feel taken up by other people so that isolation is is in itself I think very difficult for people to bear and then of course you have the whole layer two of, of conditions that are visible or not visible and and each have their own challenges if a condition is not seen if it's not visible in a different in a way you can carry it in a very alone way but if there are physical differences that come with a condition that has other challenges for esteem or practicalities too so you know there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on you know with with rare conditions and of course that's not even sort of touching on those where there are you know quite profound organic impacts too perhaps on cognitive capacities or on brain chemistry that in themselves might have psychiatric input uh, impact too so there's there's a very wide range of impacts depending on the condition itself Indeed. Now, you've highlighted quite a lot there from the psychological impact of a diagnosis up to family strains to uncertainty about the future. And of course, the alienating way in which rare conditions are, of course, alienating by the fact that lots of people in the wider community might not be familiar with them. Might you actually be able to talk us through how, through your specialisation, how your therapy maybe differs from the therapy of someone who's not a specialist in this particular area? Of course, I'm sure your own personal experience informs this therapy, but might you be able to maybe describe in some sort of way what distinguishes your therapy? I mean, I suppose one of the first things I should say is that quite often people approach us for therapy and say they felt able to do so because we had an understanding of what it was like living with a rare condition generally. And even better if we had some understanding of their rare condition specifically, because I think confidence and trust in healthcare professionals is often eroded as a result of, you know, the diagnostic odyssey 
and the fact that many will still struggle with the fact they have to be the patient expert in the healthcare professionals that they make their way to. And there's a, an element of anxiety that is taken into many encounters with healthcare professionals. So just the fact that people make their way to us, it's made possible by the fact we're saying we have an understanding of rare conditions. Obviously, we don't have an in-depth, detailed understanding of every single rare condition, but that's something we endeavour to build over time with every patient organisation or individual we work with to say that we want to understand more about the emotional impact of your particular condition, not just rare conditions generally. So I think it helps people get to us at the very at the very first outset. But the other thing that we work, the way in which we work in Rare Minds is in a lot of mental health services or psychology services, there may be a tendency to apply just one particular way of addressing difficulties. So whether that's CBT or something like another technique like acceptance and commitment therapy, or there's a tendency to sort of work from a very particular type toolkit. And, And in Rare Minds, we work in a very integrative way. So we tend to say, who is the person in front of us and what do they most need at this particular moment in time? And that's going to be different for different people. Some people might might, we you know, might do an initial consultation and think that actually couples therapy might be helpful. For someone else, it might be a referral for help with parenting support. But I think what threads through all of what we do is a sense that it is all right. It is a sense of permission to have the feelings that you might otherwise not have been able to articulate about what it means to you to be living with this condition. And often there isn't just isn't space for that in either statutory mental health services where you might get funneled down a kind of, oh, you're anxious, here's an anxiety pathway. And, you know, someone said to me recently, it felt sort of vaguely insulting that they were funneled down that route. Not that it wasn't helpful in certain aspects, but it was like, of course, I'm anxious. My child's just been diagnosed with a life limiting condition. I don't know what that's going to mean for me and my family. I feel incredibly anxious. And I'm being told, to sort of challenge my irrational thoughts. Well, they're not irrational. They're very real. They're very live. So what we try and do is is really work and start with where someone is and build out from there in the type of support that we feel is, is helpful. The other thing that is different about what we do is that by and large, we try and as a service or an individual counsellor say that we will be available as far as possible to that person at different points over the course of their rare disease journey. And I think that's really supportive for people because we then become one of those healthcare professionals that are one of the holders of their history. And even if it's not that individual counsellor that can be seen, it is someone who is part of that service who will hold the history of that individual. And that's there's something very reassuring about that in its own right. And of course, I think what's interesting about what you described as what underpins your therapy is, of course, it's not just this position of, oh, because we have the experience of rare diseases, we know what the challenges are. Of course, crucial to what your therapy is, is listening to the the person that's in front of you and learning about their condition. It's, of course, very interesting to hear that that's a sort of a very fundamental part of your therapy. And I'm sure lots of people listening who perhaps live with a rare disease or with someone who lives with a rare disease would love that kind of therapy, which is more open 
open to learning about the specifics of their very unique condition. So given that there is, of course, such high demand for the services offered by Rare Minds, I'm pretty sure I know your answer to this. (laughs) But uh, to what extent do you believe there is a gap in the provision of specialised mental health care for people living with a rare disease? Well, Julian, I do (laughs) There is a gap in the provision of healthcare for those with a rare disease. I mean, what a surprise! (laughs) I mean, I I suppose we only have to look at, you know, if we draw a parallel with, for example, cancer support services. You know, there's a plethora of different types of support in the community, in hospital settings, in psychology services, and you know, I know my colleague Lucy at Medics for Rare Diseases. She often has that. You know, if they can do it for cancer, they can do it for rare diseases, and I think it's the same with mental health. I'd like to think we can do something better actually with rare diseases and emotional well-being and mental health generally and you know there's been a long tradition of physical and mental health care services not being very joined up at all and I think there is a really interesting opportunity to do something different within rare diseases and I feel quite positive and excited about that because I think there is a will for it I think there is a need for it and I think the communities are driving it and I think also healthcare professionals have an appetite for it I think you know curiously the pandemic has also made it very clear to us that we we need to have mental health more on the agenda and there is more capacity across the board to have conversations about mental health and emotional well-being and you know, there's been a long focus for a long time in rare conditions about drives towards cure and that's you know it's a very important part of, of what we do in the community but conditions have to be lived with in the meantime and we need expertise from the range of mental health support services psychologists, psychotherapists, couples therapists, educational psychologists, parenting experts, to help it be easier to live with rare conditions, because we know there are only going to be more diagnosed as we go along, you know, particularly with genomics and genetics testing ramping up. So yeah, I think there is a real opportunity for different types of psychological support to come together and think creatively about what is helpful. Absolutely, especially given how many rare diseases don't even have a cure or don't even have a treatment, this becomes particularly important and must become a greater focus of healthcare systems. Of course, Kim, you're based in the UK and your uh, Rare Minds is familiar with the sort of situation of the rare disease community in the UK. But if I may turn to Matt, I'd be interested in hearing from you as to whether, I'm pretty sure the answer is yes again, (laughs) but whether the experiences and challenges discussed by Kim are reflected across Europe's rare disease population. Do some of the experiences that Kim's outlined, uh, are they reflected across the European rare disease population? Yeah, it's really interesting hearing Kim explain how this has impacted on her life and the life of her family, but also the community which which Rare Minds has supported. And actually in Europe, when we've been engaging with patient representatives in the ERNs, we've, we've tried to map what their needs are specific to their condition and to look at some common needs based on sort of the thematic groupings which the networks are structured by. It really struck me over the last few years that the, there's a common thread that the mental health and emotional well-being of people with a rare disease 
the directly and their families are impacted in the same way. In many ways, as Kim highlighted, you know, when we go to get support for diagnosis or we're going to get advice on our medical interventions, we're quite laser focused on, you know, what's the monitoring of the scans saying? What, what do I need surgery next? And almost that when you step away from that, you're either firefighting, trying to find a diagnosis or cure, or you're alone and you're left by yourself where other people aren't able to understand or relate to what's going on with you and your family because they don't understand, they've never heard of the rare disease. So in a way, mental health and mental well-being of our community has remained a bit of a hidden and neglected area due to stigma and often been overshadowed by those medical complexities which need attention now. So those mapping the patient journeys of, of uh, conditions, for, let's say complex and rare epilepsies or for uh, neurofibromatosis type 1, type 2, we heard repeatedly that this is, you know, such a big unmet need, which is crying out for attention. And I think that it's a real opportunity now to take some action on that. It feels like as an advocacy movement, we've got the other bases covered now. We're doing lots on diagnosis. We're doing lots on therapeutic development and research. We're doing stuff on access to specialist advice. And I think this space now to give for our community to come together and say, what about those other needs we have? Matt, can Europeans living with a rare disease access adequate mental health support right now? When you go to a genetic centre or to the hospital to get advice on your rare disease, normally that the interventions which are given there don't cover the emotional well-being and support. It's in a way, I've only ever seen it once where that happens, where the quality of life questionnaire is asked at the beginning to make visible some of those more holistic needs which people live with, which can be fed in. But typically, the focus is on addressing the, the priority there and then, and the mental health and well-being support is sort of secondary and normally not covered. So people don't get access to the psychosocial interventions which they need or even referrals into the right services to get that support. Lots of patient groups step in and, and give that support actually so and in a way whilst we talk about the psychological impacts of rare diseases actually we have a very resilient community you know we've had to become resilient but that doesn't mean that health services shouldn't be there to meet those holistic needs but really I think let's go back to Kim and maybe ask from her perspective as a specialist, a psychologist with specialist experience in rare diseases, how do we develop those competencies or, or willingness of, of more of the geneticists or medical clinicians to feed in and to give more of a balanced assessment and, and support? Well, I think you put your finger on it, Matt, when you said we, we need to move towards an integration of mental health into ordinary rare disease care. So it becomes part of of ordinary everyday consultations. And I think we can sometimes overcomplicate it, really. Quite often when I'm talking to healthcare professionals, I'll say, look, it can sometimes start as simple as saying to someone, so how are you coping with all this? How are you doing? How are you feeling in yourself? That's an ordinary conversation that shouldn't be beyond the, the wit and the competency of most of us as ordinary human beings. And in most instances, even if someone discloses that they're finding something difficult or something that might merit further intervention, there's time to work out with someone what that might be, what it might look like, and how you can signpost and help them find their way to that help. But I think it really starts with getting hold of the idea that conversations about emotional well-being and mental health 
just become part and parcel of ordinary everyday consultations about rare disease care. Matt, at the European level, what opportunities do you see for the European community coming together and advocating for change in this space? We've had, as as a, the output of the COVID pandemic, we've, on a European level, we're getting recognition and visibility of that emotional impact the, the whole society has had from three years of lockdowns and social distancing. And so we've had the recognition from Ursula von der Leyen that taking action on a European level in mental health and taking a comprehensive approach to mental health was is something which the commission is seeing as a priority. For me, you know, that fills my heart with joy that, you know, we're having this conversation on a policy level, on a political level, it's European, across the European Union with the awaited new, what is an action plan, but they're calling it a comprehensive approach to mental health health. It will be published by the European Commission in June. There's a real opportunity that we make visible the needs of people with a rare disease in mental health and well-being and to show the increased impact and accumulated impact of living with the rare disease and living through that rare disease pathway and to be seen in the European policy. So, so I think for us, we're looking to see in that comprehensive approach that people with rare disease or people with their pre-existing health condition you know, we're not alone in this. People with chronic conditions are also affected disproportionately by mental health and, and well-being. So I think for us, there's a strategic opportunity to make visible the needs of our community and to benefit from being in the wider mental health community. So there's lots of mental health advocacy out there. Mental Health Europe, Garmin is a mental health trust NGO and connecting with them. We plan your audience to apply to become a member of Mental Health Europe to engage with them. And so we can draw on their expertise and bring it into our community to benefit from where they're up to and how they're looking to address this on a bigger population size. This comprehensive approach for us is a real sort of strategic green light to take action as well. And so in your audience, we're looking to develop a mental health initiative or mental well-being initiative, I think we'll call it now, where we we can bring people together to take action on a European level, but also on a national level. We're looking to develop a new network. It wasn't an advocacy network, but we're, because we want to team up with the clinicians in the ERNs and also experts in health, in social care, in education, employment, we're going to call it a partnership network. But I think this opportunity, the time feels right now for us to take action. With the rest of our advocacy areas quite mature, there's a need now in our community to take action now. And after the pandemic, with the Commission highlighting this as a priority, to sort of align the policy at a European level with the needs of our community at a local level. The one last thing I want to just highlight is when we talk about uh, mental health and well-being, the European Commission are seeing this beyond healthcare. Most of us spend more time at work than we do at home. So looking at supporting mental well-being in the workplace, at school, in our communities and in all policy areas is where we need to look to really change those social determinants of health really and, and improve things. Definitely. It's great to see, of course, Eurodis and the European community growing its links and connecting with each other. And it sounds like, of course, the space that's being created by Eurodis will be really valuable. With regard to the action plan, of course, that you mentioned, which we're expecting from the EU to be published in June, we're really hoping, of course, aren't we, that we see the rare disease 
population of the EU explicitly mentioned and directly addressed in this plan. But to kind of conclude our conversation today, Kim, of course, people in the UK won't be directly affected by this initiative at the EU level. But just to ask you, and if I gave you the opportunity to maybe paint some sort of picture, if someone was born in the UK or somewhere else in Europe tomorrow with a rare disease, can you provide a picture of what the ideal mental health support system might look like for them? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it become normalized that you can have access to support at the the right support for the for you at the right time and that's going to look different for different people and for different conditions so i think the principle is that there is access to the support and care and help that you need at the time that you need it that you're not having to argue for it fight for it or feel that you know you're being shoehorned into a service that you don't really belong into and and you know we see that with rare diseases with you know in a physical sense that people are sort of bolted on to other services well it's you sort of fit under my umbrella so we'll sort of have you you know we'll have you included here we don't want to see that for mental health we want to see services that are in place with an understanding of rare conditions and their emotional impact definitely no again you've highlighted the principle of appreciating and respecting the specifics of individual patients experience of a rare disease. Matt, turning back to the EU, let's say you found yourself somehow and somewhere in an elevator before June with Ursula von der Leyen, and you had the opportunity to maybe land your message on what is needed from the upcoming action plan on mental health. What would your message to her be? Ask is a simple ask, really. In the comprehensive approach, it highlights some they, they call them vulnerable populations or groups which are have increased vulnerability related to their mental well-being. And we would just ask the new comprehensive approach, is in actually inclusive of all vulnerable populations, leaving no one behind? So people with an existing health condition, whether it's a chronic condition or a rare disease, are recognised and included in that policy and visible and not further marginalised because of, you know, because of how the policy is written. I think it's a great opportunity opportunity to start breaking down some of those barriers and driving greater inclusion just by giving visibility and recognition to people with the rare disease. Definitely. And I think on uh, that final message, <laughs> I'd like to thank you, Kim Winter and Matt Balls-Johnson for uh, joining us for today's episode of Rare On Air. It's been really great talking to you both. Thank you for having me, Julian. Thanks, Julian. You have been listening to Rare On Air, a Eurodis Rare Diseases Europe podcast with me, Julian Poulan. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe so you can tune in next month to learn more about the world of rare diseases. Do you have any reflections from today's episode that you would like to share? Feel free to email us at rareonair at We look forward to you joining us next month.